Hello and welcome to the Manifest Image podcast. The 20th century marked a change in the arts, no longer waiting to be retrospectively defined by critics and historians. Writers such as F.T. Marinetti, Tristan Sara and André Breton took their identities into their own hands. Deliberately coming together to outline their key beliefs into structured art theories, they disseminated these into a range of artistic manifestos. On this podcast, we explore and evaluate these manifesto-led movements, including the artists behind them and the works they produced. I'm Thomas Greengrass. And I'm Ariel de la Garza. And today we are joined by a special guest. Um, it's Aaron Yanga. Thank you very much for inviting me. Happy to be the third wheel to this great podcast. <laughs> Delighted to we're have just, you. We're just not used to praise, you see. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to be carrying on with uh, Futurist Music Manifestos. This is the second one that we'll be looking at. And it's Futurist Music, uh, the technical manifesto, by again by uh, Francesco Pratella. You missed his middle name, Thomas. I did. You say his name, Ariel. Uh, Francesco Balilla Pratella. Yeah. Nice. So. When was it? Have you got any facts for me? Yes, the facts are... Uh, this was published in May 1911, um, originally in a pamphlet in Italian, and then republished in Musica Futurista 1912, which is the same text from which we got last week's um, manifesto. That's it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and this is a translation done by Lawrence Rainey again. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Ariel, would you like to actually just give us a little reading from some of the declarations? Yeah, I think... The best way to do this is we're just going to jump in straight to the declarations and talk about them. Um, the introduction is perhaps not as exciting as no. we've had before. It covers some of the usual ground. So let's get right into it. Number one, melody must be conceived as a synthesis of harmony and the harmonic definitions of major, minor, augmented, and diminished should be considered simply as elements within a single tone, atonal chromatic mode. Two, and harmony should be considered as a magnificent conquest of futurism. Three, we must break the domination of dance rhythms. They should be considered as possible elements within free rhythm, just as the rhythm of the Handeka syllable can be an element within the stanza in free verse. Four, With the fusion of harmony and counterpoint, we must create polyphony in an absolute sense, something never in use until today. Five, we must make use of all the expressive and dynamic values of the orchestra and view instrumentation as part of incessantly mobile, universal sonority constituting a unique whole through the effective fusion of all its parts. And I think we can can start with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty so dense already. That was, uh, yeah, up to five, was it? Mm-hmm. Five of 11. That's a five good place to start. Yeah. We did warn you this is the technical manifesto, so we're jumping in, getting uh, in, the, in at the deep end, as it were. Yeah. But because we have a guest here, I think the first thing to ask is what did you actually make of the manifesto itself? How did you feel reading it? Um, well, great question. Thank you very much. Really, really broad as well. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, really nice pointed questions here. Well, you have yeah, to understand are, that are. we've been reading yeah. a lot of these, uh, these manifestos. Yeah, I've been, I've been following your work, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's great again, I have to emphasize. Um, 
We'll, right. we'll pay you later. Thanks. <laughs> we'll give you the bribe later. Cool, cool, cool. Well, it was somewhat dense. Um, I have some background in music theory, but um, as I was reading, I needed to look after some things, what they specifically mean, because a lot of these terms, um, as it was just read, and harmonics, uh, chromatic mode, all these are thrown around, um, well, quite generously. And they, to me, sometimes they feel they have overlapping meanings, unless you really, really want to go into the like very technicalities mm -hmm. and semantics of music, um, which I think you wouldn't really, as the man from the street. Right. So that's, yeah. that, that is <laughs> what really stood out to me. And, and to kind of jump ahead, and one of my later key criticisms is that it really draws attention or drew my attention to the bits of music, which if I'm just listening to it, I don't really recognize. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think people, unless they are really trained in music theory and, um, and are really knowledgeable of classical music and all these forms, um, then, then you just wouldn't recognize this either. So it seems like he's trying to demolish these concepts by appealing to them in a way. And that felt a bit uh, contradictory. But again, uh, this was written in 1911. So probably back then, um, those people who talked about music um, were a selected few. Sure. No, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, you, you, so you, you, you bring up a few... Um, so uh, another thing, listeners, um, Aaron is more... is rather significantly humble. Um, you know, he, he makes music and he, he knows music. To a decent extent, which is um, hence why we brought him on. Certainly knows more music than me. Uh, Thomas is also somewhat musically inclined. Um, I don't know if he strays much beyond David Bowie. <laughs> I think it's mostly just Bowie, but Jacob Collier. No, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the the, the, the least talent of Bowie and the um, skills of Collier. Yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. I'm Probably in, in, in that realm. But so you, I think you, you bring up something really interesting and, and important, um, which is audience. I, f I feel like we, we don't always talk about this enough. Um, in a lot of the other manifestos, definitely the first big futurist one, mm. it's... Celebrate the man behind the wheel of the car. Yeah, celebrate oh. the man behind the wheel of the car. And it's, you know, published in Le Figaro. So it, it, it is meant to have a, a very broad, yeah, you know, generally educated you know, versed in art, um, because they're all very self-referential, but huge readership. It's meant for that readership. This one feels different. Um, the, even the technical one for the painters felt a bit different. It is, again, a technical manifesto for painters, but even then, it it, it dawdles quite a bit, or rather, it like, lives quite a bit in in more understandable language. This one is specifically for composers, I think. But it's interesting because... Yeah. Because, uh, uh, I mean, no one then would have t talked about these specific points of music theory. Composers and people who went to music school would have. Yeah, it, yeah. it certainly is directed at composers. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, he even sp speaks specifically about the uneducated... Not the uneducated... Well, what does he say exactly? Uh, but um, he talks like about the low... <laughs> the low um, a sort of tastes of the masses yeah. and they have to be dragged along kicking and screaming but that's that's very futurist and 
I was going to actually get onto this mm-hmm. much later on, but I think maybe we can have a first go at it right now at the beginning, which is that all of this, uh, all of this uh, uh, technique, it serves a purpose. He doesn't specify exactly what that purpose is, but as a futurist manifesto, mm-hmm. ultimately it has to come back to this kind of raw energy and a reflection of uh, the machine age. I think I think he he does talk about that in this. Um, Not too heavily. Though. Pretty pretty explicitly though. I mean, he talks about the the main point of it, which I found quite quite good. But 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 I think that does that does that should be later on. Mm. I, I think yeah. To me, that was the yeah. very last point in the declarations. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's read it. it. Let's yeah, no, read it, it out. <laughs> read it out. Yeah, we can have a second oh, stand later. God. On. Um, cool. Yeah. Thank you for putting me in the spot. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why I'm here, basically. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the eleventh last point of the declarations is music must contain all the new attitudes of nature, always tamed by man in different ways through incessant scientific discoveries. It must render the musical spirit of the masses, the grand industrial factories, trains, transatlantic streamers, battleships, automobiles and airplanes. It must add the domination of the machine and the victorious reign of electricity to the great central motives of the musical poem. I mean, that's... That's pretty explicit. Yeah, that right one's there. explicit. I mean, but that is explicit. Amazing that it happens saying. right at the end. <laughs> I mean, it, almost it, it, it as if someone on. told him that. It feels I think on, you yeah. should add something here, <laughs> just mm-hmm. to really make it explicit. Yeah, but but let's let's yes. backtrack. Let's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's try and stick to our to our thing. So the first five. What did we think? Namely, the first one. Uh, now, of course, our excellent. listeners. Uh, have it top of mind I and mean, they're very very mm-hmm. bright they have not forgotten a single word of it mm-hmm. so there's no point in repeating it <laughs> but I, I like pointless things so mel- number one melody must be conceived as a synthesis of harmony and the harmonic definitions of major minor augmented and diminished should be considered simply as elements within a single atonal chromatic mode now there's actually two parts there the first part is melody must be conceived as a synthesis of harmony. Now, he actually uh, defines this in uh, the first section. The actual manifesto itself is, uh, apart from the declarations at the end, is split up roughly into four sections. Uh, They're not actually named, but they're segregated. And uh, we actually have a nice statement from him for it, which is, in that way it became understood that melody is the expressive synthesis of our harmonic succession. Uh, And he's got this off the back of how he understands harmony generally. And he says that harmony was historically only implied in melody, sounds following one another according to diverse modes of the scale. And so, uh, uh, I'll read the rest, was born when each melodic note was considered in relationship to the combination of all the other sounds in the mode of the scale to which it belonged. So this is an implied melody. He's actually thinking that you've got a harmonic scale, something like the 12-tone equal temperament scale. And you'll only be playing, at these early stages, only one note. But then each of your subsequent notes will have a particular relationship to each other according to that scale. And because you're only playing them in succession, you only understand a melody arising from out of it if you can synthesize them happening successively yeah, yeah. and combining them into one. A very Kantian language, actually. And I think that's also interesting from today's perspective because I feel most people who study music 
they first learn the the actual uh, harmonies and then maybe they go into melodies and how you can construct those and certainly in pop music where you have you know four chord songs mm-hmm. that concept uh, itself kind of excludes or doesn't contain melody implicitly you add that by lyrics or other rhythmic um, instrumentations but just four chords which have no melody no, to no them melody. yeah intrinsically so again looking back at it to me it was very weird that he he actually starts from melody and not harmony but do you not think that was the case historically because the idea of like a you know a 13 year old on a camping trip who's learned you know three chords and is sitting around a fire for the guitar and having a sing song sure that's that's very con- con- contemporary but i mean yeah of course if you want to go back and reconstruct things it it actually is logical because the first instrument is probably your voice. Now yeah. you cannot really sing in two voices at the same time, which is required for you to create a harmony mm-hmm. at one instance. So, yeah, in that case, it, it's kind of logical that that harmony follows from melody. But at this age where we have... Um, Computers. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you can... Mm-hmm. I think it's much easier to conceive harmony first and then melody but again, maybe it's all subjective. Mm. But it, it's great to see that he, he actually uh, uh, defines... A, he has within melody... And it, it has, uh, so I, I guess, I guess my, my question it, is... That it's implied. Sure. I like that. I mean, it's I, somewhere within it. I guess my question is, what, what, what would be the significance of it? Like, why, why would it matter that... Or what, what would it mean that melody should be conceived like this as opposed to the other way? Does, does that... Does that make you think in any different way, or not really? Well, hold on. So you were, we were just having a... Sorry to interrupt there. Uh, we were just actually saying, uh, or rather you were just saying, that uh, harmony is prior. Yes. And that's what's really being said here, that uh, uh, um, uh, we understand as a synthesis of harmony, that harmony is natural insofar as it's within the scale, but that the melody is comprised of a kind of synthesis of the harmony that will be within those notes that are actually played from that scale. So harmony will still be prior. Yes, and I think that kind of answers Eric's question as well, because mm-hmm. what I feel, he tries to deconstruct all these different forms. Um, now, harmony is static. You can have it at a single instance. You don't need the element of time for it to be understood. Mm-hmm. For melody, you need to piece different time fragments together and make it into mm-hmm. a harmony. So in a way, if you only focus on harmony, you have this, I don't know, um, homogeneous mass of notes. Manifold, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. If I knew what that meant. Um, the many in one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Yes, could be. Um, or it is, yeah. So it, it's just... You don't need any additional structure about the notes existing. Uh, whilst with melody, you would still need the concept of time uh, and deconstruct that concept to make sense of it, harmonically speaking. <laughs> Hope that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it made more sense to me than it did on first reading. <laughs> mm, okay. but, but then, so I think we actually really like that synthesis of harmony and that's actually quite an interesting way of defining melody 
um, obviously synthesis is doing the heavy lifting there. Um, what operations are actually being done? <laughs> That's another question. Um, but then we also have the uh, these typical classes, major, minor, augmented, diminished, these harmonic definitions, and that these are considered simply as elements within a single atonal chromatic mode. Now, what uh, yeah, I think this is a heavy the, one with yeah. the uh, single atonal chromatic mode. We can start with the chromatic mode and then maybe, well, just with mode. Well, cool. maybe you want to read out that section, Ariel, because uh, when I first read it, I didn't know whether it was entirely clear what he means. Yeah, I'm we, still not sure. Here, right? We futurists proclaim that the diverse modes of old scales, the various sensations of major, minor, augmented, diminished, and even the more recent modes of scales for whole tones are none other than simple details of a unique harmonic and atonal mode of a chromatic scale. And then he will go on to say, moreover, we declare that the values of consonants and dissonance are non-existent. But he just sort of lumps that in on the end. Mm -hmm. That's all we get of this phrase, uh, a unique harmonic and atonal mode of a chromatic scale. So, so for the uninitiated like myself, the chromatic scale is what? Uh, I think maybe it's easier if we, if we try to come to this question from the atonal perspective. Okay. Uh, and let's, let's just contrast that with tonal. Um, which would mean that when you have a musical piece and it's tonal, yeah. that means there is a central tone, a central note that it gravitates towards. To that's that's a stable point. When you hear it, you kind of feel that it's it's a closure or something that's fundamental to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. They call um, it the tonic. The tonic yeah. Mm -hmm. um, opposed to that. If you have an atonal piece, that means there is no no center, no no solid point. You kind of it gives you the sense of mm -hmm. um, like being lost or yeah. instability, but it's also very relative. Um, so, for example, in medieval music, you would have um, these exotic scales. One of them is the Locrian scale which uh, today would be a uh, scale with no modifications. So it's kind of like a C major scale. But instead of C, you start it from B. Mm -hmm. And that today sounds very weird, but just because you are not used to it. Um, but I guess back then it was... People could make more sense of it, or they meant they felt more familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And I think what this paper is trying to get to is you really have these traditions in music um, and customs that you just got used to. So mm -hmm. they kind of pre-train you to like certain things or tend to do certain things, Sure. but they're all wrong or they are not really fundamental. They are not there. You should question these boundaries. And I think this is what is going on in this, this paragraph as well. Um, and I kind of... Awaited your question of a chromatic scale? Yeah, thank you. No, but it, but I mean, this this felt better than, than answering that one. Yeah. Cool. Ah, uh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Um. Anyway, chromatic scale is basically when you have um, semi-notes following each other. Um, so instead of having wait, no, that's not right. I mean, it is right, but within the within the Western uh, tradition, yeah. we have the twelve-tone mm -hmm. uh, chromatic scale. Uh, uh, typically attributed to Pythagoras, 
But he didn't have equal temperament. We currently use equal temperament. And um, temperament is the exact e frequencies that you have um, ordered to each note. Okay. Pretty broadly, yeah. Right. Um, but in Pythagorean terms, they are supposed to follow um, these perfect ratios. But if you do that, you would have problems when you try to transpose a piece, which means, let's say it is written in, I don't know, G sharp minor. Mm -hmm. And then you try to play it in a different key, let's say um, B, B flat minor. Um, you might have issues if you stretch it too far and it just doesn't sound right. So instead of following these perfect ratios, they kind of cheated with them. And mm -hmm. so they place them equal distances each note from each other which sounds all right for you and all right for me as well yeah um, but it is not oh but it's, it's okay no I, yeah, yeah, but, but it's, it's not it's exact kind of shifted from the perfect pythagorean well because it wasn't perfect it quickly broke his ratios <laughs> didn't work they don't work but and don't, so what do, you, what do you mean they don't work and they don't sound right or no no, no. they sound the right. mathematically they okay. don't work Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, he ends it's up doing some fudges uh, to develop the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, well, so what you do is uh, it would be all uh, you'd pick a basically a central note, mm -hmm. and then you could like say like a, a middle C, and then define every other note from that first note. But then if you went to like eight octaves later above or below, it sounded out of tune. Because the ratios were all done according to this this fixed thing and right, not okay, with relation sure. to each yeah, other. Yeah, that sounds like a, a classic Pythagorean thing of <laughs> just not understanding your numbers quite right. Yeah, well, the man yeah. supposedly drowned someone for saying that there's a square root of two. Yeah, <laughs> that's what are you gonna do? It's the hypotenuse of a one by one. <laughs> sure. But uh, uh, yeah, and so. But the, the real problem with that one, uh, this unique harmonic and atonal mode of a chromatic scale, is he says that uh, these diverse modes of all scales, blah, 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 are, uh, and even more recent scales, are simply details of a unique harmonic and atonal mode of a chromatic scale. Now, I wasn't sure whether this is some sort of fundamental uh, general scale, that this is kind of his uh, mm -hmm. uh, musical base that he can tap into and that there are other ways, you know, because if there's simple details, perhaps then there are others that he can fill in. Or is it that this whole unique harmonic and atonal mode of a chromatic scale has to be mm. ditched? So are these all part of a, a, a flaw? No, I think, I think no, he's I think fond of this idea, like this is what the, we the, should... The one grand scale? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think he's for the one grand scale. Mm. But it's not entirely clear. No, I think, it's, I think he means the one grand scale. No, no. <laughs> Sorry to uh, not yes and you there with no, the uh, no, no. with the grand scale thing. No, but I, I think I think I think that's what he's yeah, aiming for. And I, I think I think that might make sense also more broadly because he's trying to expand the like general. I guess I guess the uh, what we take to be an acceptable X and X fill in your musical concept pretty yeah. much, or an acceptable sound, or what we take to be a song, or what we take to be a a composition, and that will, you know, to, to free it in the way free verse has freed poetry. Mm. So I think if a car is somehow somewhere, the sound of a car is somewhere on the grand scale, yeah. then okay. But then that's a really good question, because like a chromatic scale would not imply that there is 
car crash fitting onto that scale. It's still, mm. It still is very fragmented. For many, ma sorry, many notes. The, the car crash could be many notes. It, and many, yes, many, it, many it, it probably is. Um, but then we can ask, like, why not? Why not just say there is a an infinite scale here, and mm. if you point it to distinct points on this scale, there is always something in between. Why not just say uh, let's let's get rid of this entire system um, instead of making it more flexible? Patel might not have been why familiar not? with Cantor's proof. No, <laughs> might not have been right. familiar with Cantor's proof that yeah. there are an infinite number of numbers. Yeah. And and I think okay, just just to tie it together with something um, uncountably many mm -hmm. um, with the with the Pythagorean thing. Um, Thomas he showed the whiskey whiskey Kotsky piece, <laughs> which is uh, two <laughs> perfectly no no no. Pianos. Before before you pronounce it, uh, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give it a shot too. Whiskey Kotsky piece. Whiskey Negrette. Oh, we practiced this bit for like an hour before this. Okay. But what's great is if you type his name up, you'll see that there are about four other spellings. <laughs> sure. He does, yeah. Is it, is it, is it not in uh, the, the Western alphabet? Or the Latin alphabet? No, no, yeah, no, it's it the same. Okay. It's still, they it's just still people the bungle it. Yeah, okay. they just keep changing it. So... Uh, yeah, but he's uh, well. You why did you mention him? Because uh, well, he's well, an example he's, of something. He goes in between uh, notes. Um, if you have yeah. one scale, yeah, he does. Uh, instead of going from the twelve tone uh, equal temperament, he moves into a twenty-four tet. Uh, so he actually moves up instead of going by semitones, quarter tones, uh, and he has he and several others in the early part of the twentieth century uh, first tried to actually write and compose in that uh, this twenty-four system. And these are examples of microtones. So these are tones in between uh, by having two pianos, one piano that's standard tuning and then one piano that has all of its uh, uh, keys tone, yeah. uh, uh, quarter. Oh, a quarter of a step yeah. toned down, tuned down. And okay, but that's also very interesting because mm. I assume you have two pianos, you have two pianists playing it. Uh, they would have two, two pieces of sheet music in front of them. Um, now, I'm not sure if it's a big leap from here, probably not, but another important thing that he talks about after talking about the chromatic scale, mm -hmm. which is again just the, the 12 um, semi-notes um, followed by each other, uh, he also talks about anharmonics. Um, yes, good. Aaron, moving us forward, <laughs> Part which we two, should keep going. One. So the second one, and harmony should be considered as a magnificent conquest of futurism. Yeah, yeah, big statement there. Um, so and and harmonics is the concept where you have a given note um, and it's a fixed frequency. Let's let's take it for now. Um, in music, you could you could have a notation for that in two different ways. Um, mm -hmm. So you could have, if you move up half a note from C, you would have a C sharp, but um, the anharmonic equivalent of that is a D flat, uh, but it's literally the same, the same note. Uh, the same frequency. Yeah, you, you cannot hear the difference. It only makes sense if you put it in the context of music theory or a piece of music that's written down. And I think the interesting thing about the Wiskinegretsky piece is it's richer in the sense that you have 
quarter notes, so notes between notes that you would have on a piano, but you don't necessarily stretch it as far as having an harmonic equivalent. Because it's quite conceivable that both piano sheet musics follow the conventions of earlier pieces. That is, you don't really have an harmonic variations. So when you say it's a C sharp, you're never going to say in that same piece of sheet music that it's a D flat actually. But it seems to be very important for this guy, Patella, uh, yeah, um, to to stretch to stretch music and say, yeah, let's let's get rid of that theory from before and use an harmonics. Because um, again, that's something that you would not you would not hear. I mean, it's impossible to hear that. Is it an right? That's not the whole point, right? Yeah. Yes, or, or you'd really need to be musically trained and realize that, okay, the author um, or the composer shifted from this scale into this other scale, and to do that, he used an harmonic variations or modification. But again, like I'm not able to hear that unless someone points it out, and even then, I cannot really point out that this is where it happens. You just mm -hmm. feel a bit more, again, like with a... Unsettled? With an atonal scale, yeah. Um, okay or in atonal music that there is there is just no solid point it's all shifting it's in movement it's quite interesting but but again you you probably wouldn't notice it unless it's pointed out to you mm. so um is this the point where you talk about jacob collier no <laughs> no okay <laughs> but uh, no i, I was Damn gonna it. i was gonna oh, add on a little oh, bit I more thought I'd, I'd had it i yeah. was gonna add on a little bit more though uh, uh because we've been talking about uh, this is essentially enharmonic equivalence mm -hmm. um but when we talk about something like uh, something being a C sharp or a D flat, it's not like you just, in terms of uh, Western uh, uh, music theory, you don't normally just go, oh, I'll pick whatever I want. I'll okay. call it whatever I want. It's, you don't really do that. I mean, there's nothing to stop you from going also a, a C sharp sharp, which would be, uh, uh, that, that would be a, a, just a, a D. That would mm -hmm. be just a D. And that's an enharmonic equivalent. It's, it's about uh, these names, which you attach to the frequency, they behave differently because... They it's are as if within you, a different scale or a different... Yeah, you'll okay. end up thinking of them differently. It's as if uh, when you... Hmm. Uh, uh, within the same note, within different scales, uh, can have different relationships to each other. And so it's almost as if there's a different syntactic I mean, this relationship. Sounds, like, my only, my only um, reference to this, and so this is, I don't know how helpful it will be to anyone else, but... It sounds a bit like math to me. Um, like you can call, I mean, it, it is right. It's Pythagoras, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, well, I mean, these are all mathematical. <laughs> they can all be. These are all mathematical relations. They're all representation. They're all relations, right? Yes. So then it's kind of like math. So I guess you can talk about two, and depending which two you mean, that two will be very different. If it's the two in the natural numbers you could maybe make an argument that it's the same two in the real numbers or the same two in like some more exotic number space. But it, 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 if you define that thing by virtue of its relations within the structure that it lives in, then yes, they're, they're different things. So I think I understand what you mean. So if you talk about two in... The rational numbers, it's a very different two from the two in, I don't know, 
the modular ring size four. Well, if I also it's a different two, even if, if I, it's the same two in a way. If I even if I also specifically started speaking about、uh, the positive root of the square root of four, and talking、mm-hmm. about two that way, the positive two that way. You will, if I refer to it like that, the positive root of the square root of of four. Then you will have a certain idea in your well, but mind there, about but there, this relationship. It would, it would just have the one root, right, which would be, be two. No, minus two as well. Not, not just for four. Oh yeah, well, I guess so.、Mm. Not, but not really though, because the square root of four is two. And again, minus two. Yeah, <laughs> plus yeah. and minus two. Whichever, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for what I know about math,、yeah. it, it sounded a com- compelling comparison because、mm-hmm. you need to place it in a relation in order to make sense of it. Yes. If, if I just play you a C sharp or a D flat, who knows?、Mm-hmm. You cannot tell which one it is. You need to put it in context, and then based on the traditions that Pratella did, I get it right? Yeah. Yeah.、Cool. Uh, tries to question. Uh, but based on those traditions, you can make sense of it as either C sharp or D flat. Yeah, no, definitely. But it's in in a way the same thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, but so by by just saying that and harmony generally,、uh, and this, with this modular idea, I think we should get this 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 thought that if we then start to think that any note and any、mm-hmm. sound can be called various things, that we're going to start breaking out of these、uh, typical structures. And so that's where、uh, that's also where we then kick into the yes, there is no consonants and there is no dissonance. Yes, yeah. And I think that's a convenient thing because I suspect when a lot of people listen to a lot of futurist-inspired music, they go, "It's very dissonant, actually,、sure. <laughs> isn't it? It's very dissonant." So it's convenient to just get rid of those terms.、Mm. In a way, but also、um, Stravinsky was working around the same time. Nineteen thirteen, he re- releases the Rite of Spring.、Hmm. Right, yeah, two years after this manifesto, and、um, his music at the time was described as atonal. But if you listen to it today, you feel really comfortable with it, given、mm-hmm. that what you can also hear, I don't know,、um, let's say Stockhausen, which is, if you put them side by side and you have to pick the atonal one, I think you would you would point to Stockhausen.、Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it. Keeping what you can hear is it, and again bringing it back to the audience, really,、um, really will influence your perception of a piece. Not sure where I was going with that thought, but it's helped. No, no, it, it, yeah, that is important. So I think we can, we can、uh, maybe get through some of the next ones a little quickly because you, you brought up, I think one of the. Some some important stuff. It, he's been getting. He's been. I I don't know to what extent it was accepted that、um, that music is, music theory is is this grand convention. I mean, I'm assuming it was accepted then then as well, right? Like, there's no there、yeah. wasn't some like hard realism about what is a nice song or what sounds good or that consonants or all these things. I mean, is there some of it? There、it's, must still be some. It's, it's, um, like,、yeah. are some things naturally pleasing to us? Or is that is that mostly? Yes, they, they yes. have theories. I think they, you can、yeah. make the make the argument make for the that. Argument that yeah, some things are naturally pleasing. Yeah, yeah. Like you, 
and you don't even need to go into theory. Um, just think about really loud noises. That's that's not really pleasing. Right. Okay. And that's okay. That's sure. not the scale or fr uh, frequencies, but still a musical uh, concept. Uh, but I'm sure you can make the same argument with um, with pitch too. Um, if something is super high pitched and pierces your ears, you sure. try to stay away. Um, so so there, sure. we, we start we start limiting quite. We start limiting what what we would yeah yes but then again uh, we start adding limits keep yeah. keep bringing in new stuff but for example contemporary noise artists um, they make music that is uh, literally painful it it gives you nausea if you listen to it but why they do oh, that oh, great <laughs> <laughs> and and no it's not but uh, it's really it's, it's really interesting because why sure. they do that. Um, is if you listen to this and they just bring in a part which is silent, you start really appreciating just being quiet. <laughs> it's like it's like it's the, super pleasing. It's you, like the old Jewish joke about the oh. the guy that lives in um he he lives with his wife and his family and he 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 has his house and his house is a little terrible and he doesn't like it and he just complains all the time and he's sad and he goes to the rabbi and asks Rabbi I'm miserable what can I do? The rabbi asks Do you have uh, do you have chickens? Yeah, so, okay, take the chickens into your house. And he goes and takes chickens to the house and says, Rabbi, it's so much worse. There's shit everywhere, feathers, it's uh, unbearable. Go, you know, he says, well, do you have goats? Yeah. Well, take the goats into your house. And so on and on and on it goes. Till he says, I'm, I'm at my breaking point. I, I, that's it. I, I think I'm considering suicide. I don't know what to do anymore. He says, take out all the animals. And he does. And he says, Rabbi, my life is fantastic. <laughs> it's never been this good before. You know? um, yeah, exactly. So that, yeah. yeah, but then the question arises, is there an intrinsic quality in silence which is pleasing? Mm -hmm. Or is it all just these relations? And um, yeah, probably the latter. Yeah, no, but, but exactly. So that's, that's kind of what, what I was... There is this structure, I guess, that is music theory um, that we overlay onto stuff yeah um but all of that is it shifts through time it shifts through culture it shifts through through the stuff that we're just listening to i mean i think even in everyone's lives you know you, you go through music that you like and that you don't and i think on a purely musical that is not thematic level we change um, not only with the themes once you include the themes then then it gets even even more different. I mean, <laughs> who would still be listening to like, you know, Wagner. the Black Parade right now? Like, oh. this, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just a nothing wrong with MCL. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with them. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is, he's tearing down um, these like representational structures that undergird Western music, but only so much, right? Yes, but then... I don't think he's really... It's more like he... Sure, he does explicitly say mm -hmm. these certain categories are meaningless. Mm -hmm. But then it's as if he also thinks... Because he does like uh, to, to have a history. So that very, uh, you know, the slightly tedious start mm -hmm. is where he, he starts to list off uh, uh, um, previous musicians... Mm -hmm. And saying that, ah, oh, well, you know, anyone who was innovating was... Oh, I'll read it out. All innovators, logically speaking, have been futurists in relation to their time. 
Palestrina would have thought that Bach was crazy, and Bach would have thought Beethoven the same, and Beethoven would have thought Wagner equally so, and blah, 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 carries on. So he very much, uh, the fact that he begins with that, I think is is a very clear indication that he considers himself as part of that tradition, but it's more about moving forward. Um, I think... It's, it's strange. I'm going to relate to Elliot. But it's interesting because he's moving forward, but he's a futurist. So it's not enough to just move a little bit ahead of the last guy. You have to move ahead eternally. Right? Yeah. You have to sort of move ahead in the endless flux of moving aheadness. Um, it's the most ahead of going ahead. So that's why I think it's, it's, he really is trying to shatter things more than... Yes. Better. I mean, probably the... Or to me, the clearest bit about that is when he talks about that you need to abolish the conservatories and the... Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very futurist. Yeah. Um, Museums are decadent. They're old. They're, they're nothing but graveyards. Yeah, What but... about canals there? <laughs> no. <laughs> Rivulets for cretins. That's yeah. right. Damn. <laughs> But no, so uh, I think uh, we should just very briefly mention yeah, the let's, third let's one. Yeah, let's mention them, because I, th- I think we're, we're sort of moving through them yeah. uh, rather swiftly. Third one is, we must break the dominion of dance rhythms. They should be considered as possible elements within free rhythm, just as the rhythm of the syllable can be an element within the stanza in free verse. Uh, a syllable because of the analogy that he uses there to explain mm-hmm. it. It's an, uh, uh, it's, uh, it was a classical line, typically in Greek mm-hmm. or, or Latin... Um, which consisted of 11 syllables. And it's a very, it's a very stuffy meter that doesn't can you work give us well. A, can you give us a... Certainly just, not. Just off the cuff? No, certainly uh. not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is, a, there is a famous example. that uh, There is this uh, poet called uh, Catullus, uh, or Catullus, mm-hmm. um, who is... Catullus. Yeah. You know, a bit like what, what Petrarch mean, or Shakespeare you, are to the sonnet. You mean keys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a bit what Petrarch or um, Shakespeare are to the sonnet, he is to the Hendeka syllable, yeah. but it doesn't work well at all wow. in um, in most contemporary European languages. It's okay, so too... so there we go, right? It's it's he's he, he says to, to get rid of these things that seem old and stuffy and terrible. Yeah, what dance was but he free talking rhythms, about? Was free he talking rhythm. about valtz? Probably, yeah. probably the valtz, right? Yeah. But yeah, and also he doesn't mm-hmm. like repetitive. Uh, dances. He wants the rhythm and the tempo to change. So he's probably looking at polyphony. So uh, sorry, um, a polyrhythms. So he would have hated That's EDM, <laughs> or maybe not, because ADM is um, like pretty void of theory. So, so he would have liked maybe that. He loved it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a polyrhythm and polytempo, likely as well, um, as well as shifting tempos. Sure. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that. I mean, something like Boulder's Love, I mean, the, the Hendrix song. Mm-hmm. In the first, I think, 10, 15 seconds, the, the BPM tempo changes. Yeah. Uh, it shifts. So anyone who tries to put a metronome to it, they go, huh, this seems to be out of time. I'm, I'm sorry, is, is this the point where we start talking about Jacob Collier? <laughs> Not yet. Ah, oh, damn. I mean, any I point know, is a good point. Too. Yeah, any point, really. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe with the single atonal chromatic mode. Yeah. But I'm gonna, but I'm gonna jump into the next few um, okay. because we are we are running very long. With the fusion of harmony and counterpoint, we must create polyphony in an absolute sense, something never in use until today. Uh, is that even true? Tough one. Mm. Um, I mean, by if you mean today, today, probably it's false. Mm-hmm. 
if we mean back in the day? 1911. We do try to uh, put ourselves in their shoes and not... Yes. And not have VPN. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this episode is sponsored by... No, no, no. no, no, no. If only. Well, Please. If um, only. I mean, probably back then it, it's true if, if he's written it. I know very, very, very little about Counterpoint. Um, to me, maybe it's... Well, Counterpoint would have been rich in the Baroque era. Yeah, it's, it's kind of having yeah, two, mm. two or more, um, more or less independent melodies constituting a whole. Yeah, um, but that will at various points resolve into one another, so they have to have a meeting point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think here, since he's very big on anharmonics and um, atonal music, he wants to have the freedom of those counterpoint melodies, so you would have si simultaneous melodies, mm -hmm. but they don't follow the rules that they need to resolve. Um, so, again, it's just these um, okay. additions onto that one overarching hodgepodge of music. So, yeah, I think... Okay, so the, the, the next few, let's see, we must make use of all the expressive and dynamic values of the orchestra and, instrument, and view instrumentation as part of an incessantly mobile universal sonority constituting a unique whole through the effective fusion of all its parts. Yeah, I, I, I want to add just a, a yes. little thing here, which we won't go into any detail, but quite quickly. I did end up looking into... Um, what actually constitutes an orchestra? What are the typical mm. instruments and the groupings that make... And it shifts. There is a history of the orchestra. The orchestra is very much a kind of a 17th century creation. Mm -hmm. um, some might argue there are slight precursors, whatever. But it's more or less then. And what is part of it changes mm -hmm. uh, according to the time. It constantly moves forward. Um, and so th there won't actually be any particular instruments that are you know, the necessary ones have an to be there, yeah. yeah, it'll always change depending on mm -hmm. the time. And uh, so I thought we should just allude to that. Or the conductor? Even the conductor, so you no. Don't, oh, not in a chamber no. orchestra, you don't need one, oh, right? That's true, that's yeah, true. they didn't. You don't always have that. Sick transit. Uh, but um, uh, mm -hmm. the expressive and dynamic values. Obviously, we have from the previous one, and it's again repeated in this manifesto, about the role of uh, the voice. Uh, he, it was very clear in the previous manifesto mm -hmm. that the voice is no more important, uh, so the vocal line is no more important than any other element of the orchestra. Right. So there is that... Um, uh, th there is that... Um, how did we refer to it last time? I, I refer to it as an egalitarian. It's, it's, it's kind of an equality, but um, mm -hmm. certainly they're, they're viewed as being yeah. on the same level. They have all the same relevance to the overall whole. Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah, yeah it's again then, through the effective fusion of all its parts. I think that works very well, and that the mobile universal sonority constituting a unique whole. I think that when the, he's got the orchestra all working together. Mm -hmm that there is this uh, emergent property, this overtone that comes out, and that is what it is. Yeah. And that's how an orchestra should be used, rather than at various points a violin may, may take the lead part or a singer may take the lead part, that actually, no, 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 there's, there's something else that music should do. Mm. Hmm. I think you can make a really good connection with the next point. Yes. Um, 
just to keep keep going yeah. forwards. I mean, we, we also don't have to go through each and every one specifically. If there's one that you find really interesting, I think we can definitely bring it up. Um, hmm. I mean, then let's let's do the next two. I think they, sure. they fit rather well with this one. Um, the regarding musical forms as following form and dependent on the generative emotional motifs. And we must not confuse symphony with the usual traditional dead and buried schemes of sym symphonic. We must not confuse symphonic with the usual traditional dead and buried schemes of symphony of the symphony. Yeah, yeah which I think Thomas just explained how to how to take that mm -hmm. and then bringing it together. Uh, in number six, which is again, uh, musical forms should follow from a um, from independent uh, on the generative emotional motives, um, which is a an area of dispute, but to me that motif is, and I should quote from the earlier part of the mm -hmm. manifesto, where he says that um, the pure symphonist, there should be no criterion other than his artistic sense of balance and proportion. This is one part, and taking it together with for man, absolute truth consists in what he feels as a yeah. human being. Yeah. Um, so bring it all together again. I feel there is there is this grand figure of the composer or the mm -hmm. artist. Uh, whatever he feels, makes of the word, is true for him. That is for sure. That is certain. And he has to fit everything else in music around this core concept. Uh, whether that's the... Um, notes he uses, whether that's the instrument and whether that's the proportion of these instruments and how they're used um, together should express that core uh, motif. Yes. I guess. See, that's really interesting because I'd, I'd written here. He almost makes that very explicit with the constant allusions to free verse. Um, and he, I mean, obviously, he, he, he also has opera in mind here very strongly. So he also has narrative in mind, and he has story in mind, um, to some degree. And... The, so, the, it, yeah, I, th I think this whole thing has been like an exercise in meaning and music, right? Meaning and tone and syntax and music, both, you know, like, like meaning and words, meaning and syntax, blah, 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 and then the same thing transposed to music. Yeah, that's an excellent way. And... Looking at it. Yeah, and... In free verse, you, you also sort of shatter the architecture by which you usually coddle your verses to make sense in, like, there's a few levels of it, right? I mean, the, the first level would be the, I don't know, the sonnet or something. Like, you have your, your staid form that you package your words and your meaning into to evoke a certain kind of response. And he's... He's, he's, almost, he's almost playing around with how much of that structure you can get rid of while still transmitting something. But even that transmission, that emotional motif of the, of the work, I think, um, is profoundly contextual. So it shifts, just like in your example about um, uh, the, the, the medieval, medieval oh, scales. Yeah. Right? That to us they sound unsettling, but maybe to them they really didn't. Well, I think the, the, the yeah. interesting word, the phrase here is emotional motif. 
Uh, and and that I think you're absolutely right when saying that there is something about there has to be a meaning in it. That that kind of bothers me because uh, yeah he he talks about opera a lot uh, mm-hmm. and um, and that the artist should also be the author of the story and narrative of the opera mm-hmm. yeah but, certainly should write the libretto yeah 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 and um, and to me that's that's weird because I don't think you need a story in order to express a feeling um, you definitely don't yeah yeah it's it's just one way of expressing a feeling and it could be very very good. Um, could make a good point but you already need to contextualize it in terms of um, in terms of language and I think or to me one of the great thing about music is that um, that you don't really need to make sense of it you can just feel it in a much more elementary sense yeah uh, so to me it was weird that after talking about how to demolish all these old forms of music He's very... Well, this is the thing, right? So you don't need a story necessarily, but you do need syntax in a way. So all these things that we've been talking about where you say like, well, this makes you feel unsettled, right? Well, what, what is that that makes you feel unsettled? I mean, it's maybe an atonal piece. Maybe he's doing this and that and that thing with scales, right? So it, it, it's, it's maybe the, the, the transmission of meaning like i guess from from grammar and from like the your toolbox of words you know writing it's your toolbox of words and grammar and whatever and you kind of slide that on to 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 the page and then that evokes a meaning to to a person and in music it might be slightly different like you don't need the words you don't need a full story and arc but you you might still make use of you do still make use of it somehow no of of this like of, t- of notes, of tonal shifts, of other words to do with music. See, it strikes me. Does that make, does that make sense, or am I saying it does? Nonsense? Yeah, and it's an interesting point, but it, yeah, it, it, it strikes me that he has two points really with the libretto. One, he says it has to be in free verse. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason for that is because he thinks that if you have a strict meter, that that will actually then uh, 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 it will force the music to match the meter. So your, your, your tempo mm. and your metrical structure will have to uh, uh, accommodate uh, uh, the, the poem. It'll have to uh, accommodate the meter of the poem. And he thinks that that's musically limiting. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. Second one, which he uh, mentions last week, uh, I think it's in the last week's um, manifesto where the reason for... Um, composing the uh, uh, libretta as well, by the, uh, d- uh, as well as the music, but also the words, has to come from, I think it relates actually to the, uh, to using the orchestra as a whole, uh, and uh, that your piece has to be uh, a unified whole in a sense. If he thinks that there's something that's intimately c- uh, connected between the very construction and composition of music, as well as then how it's then performed and played later on. You can't just artificially bolt things on after the fact. It kind mm. of has to happen in the musical creation itself. Otherwise, it starts to come apart. It's as if it's not unified. It's no longer organic. Mm. And I think that's really where it comes in, that that's why they have to do the same thing. If someone else does it, the music will suffer. The, the, the piece as a whole will suffer for it. Now, we can think that he's certainly wrong, I think we constantly uh, disagree sure, with sure. you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, just on that note, um, it, it, 
comes to mind that if you have a symphonic piece, and let's say it's it was the author who wrote everything and conceived everything, and it's all of his work, but when you play it, it's going to be an orchestra. And in a way, if you play a piece of music, you already interpret it somehow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it surely cannot be just this one one man or woman behind everything. Um, right. The, the, there is an interpret. It's performance. It's impossible, right? yeah. yeah. Um, but I think he tries his best. So he says, the opera composer has to take into account these secondary elements in the wake of his aesthetic and musical inspiration. So I think actually trying to predict as many... Uh, um, uh, variables is is a key part of being an opera composer. That's interesting. Mm, yes, but also I feel that sometimes just taking somebody else's work in um, gives you the basis of creating something. And mm-hmm. if they are a better writer, let's suppose, um, mm. it's quite conceivable. <laughs> Why, mm. why not just use their words and expressions, which you couldn't do in terms of some sort of spoken language and that structure, but you can very well interpret those same meanings as you see them in music. Sure. That To me, that in a way is more organic than if I try to butcher a poem together and then make music for it. Mm. Actually, I found a, a great uh, place to put that. The opera composer, simply in linking his words together, is creating rhythms, is already creating musically, and so becomes the author of his own poem, hence the free verse. If instead he sets someone else's words to music, he is stupidly renouncing his own wellspring of original inspiration and taking over from someone else the rhythmic part of his melodies. So well, I think the free verse has to... He's believing that whatever kind of um, uh, uh, awkward because it's going to be awkward sure. uh, uh, and certainly not consistent mm-hmm. uh, or randomly consistent if it is. Um, so what you're saying the music terrible. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, but yeah. he will then have to uh, uh, put the words on top of that rather than have someone else write the words and then force the music to match that. But I think it's it, the primacy of the music. Sure. I mean, it's interesting. It's a little bit what Aaron was saying about um, four chord songs nowadays, right? Where the melody comes almost entirely from the, the, the words, Right? Yeah. Um, lyrics, yeah. The lyrics, sorry, yeah, sorry. From, from, from the lyrics, right? So, you know, in a way, he, he, he understands that, 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 the, that the lyrics do have a, a significant musical, musical impact on the piece that um, could perhaps be very disruptive mm-hmm. or, or, like, at least set a very strong... Um, I'm, I'm making motions with my hands, listeners. So, you know, just, well, just you know, you, you get it, yeah. It's, a, it's amazing because actually our, our discussion there uh, has actually included uh, 8, 9, and 10, which oh, were... Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Look at that. So uh, uh, 8, we must conceive of the opera as a symphonic form. We've already said that he likes the opera. Uh, 9, we must make it an absolute requirement that the musician be the author of the dramatic or tragic poem for his music. The symbolic action of the poem should leap to the mu- musician's imagination, impelled by his wish to explicate emotional motifs. Okay, on this point, just to mm-hmm. to add in the dramatic or tragic poem, yeah, that, that supposes some sort of story. Yes, doesn't it? It does. Well, to, for opera, yes, for opera certainly. Um, but he is uh, he names other forms of music as the high point of futurist music. Uh, he thinks that one moment. I it's it's interesting. Them. So I'm, I'm gonna. Also, by the way, the 11th one is, we've mentioned it before, music must contain the attitudes of nature, always tamed by man. To, 
It it's completely tacked on. It's just your your bog standard futurist <laughs> Isn't it? Uh, 11th thing. So you know. We I know to, it doesn't even it's fit in completely, completely relevant. Um, but yeah, the, the futurist considers its maximal forms to be the symphonic poem, orchestral and vocal, and the opera. And orchestral and vocal is one one type of uh, one form, as mm-hmm. it were. So orchestral and vocal could also then, you know, you, you have to have some sort of line there, whether actually there are words or you're just ooing and ahhing. It's <laughs> another thing. Well, jumping uh, between the, the parts a bit, but then just adding on to the last one, which um, we concluded that it's just added on later. Um, there's an interesting part where he actually talks about being close to nature by music or that mm. it should be yes. something uh, that kind of unifies man with nature and um, that is pa-pa-pum. yeah I, I, I didn't do a pithy summary but um, yeah I said it's separated into four sections and it's in this uh, in a way Tom we've just done the pithiest of summaries yeah. <laughs> it only took an hour third and yeah, yeah. third and fourth uh, sections have these great uh, uh, great sections that seem to stretch a little bit beyond music we have these sky water uh, waters forests rivers mountains crisscrossing ships and swarming cities are transformed by the soul of the musician into marvellous and potent voices that sing with human tones the desires of man his passions for joy and suffering so revealing by the power of art the common and indissoluble chain that links him with the, all the rest of nature sorry <laughs> um, no this was uh, way better than I, I could have hoped to achieve so <laughs> but that's that's very, that's nice I mean that's something sure. that almost Marinetti could have written mm-hmm. and so I think that's uh, yeah if you want to actually see some because the rest of it is very very technical but there are a few parts including this third section where uh, we, we are related mm-hmm. and we have these uh, it's wonderful you were, to see you were, humanity's you're... relationship to nature you were going to say something about this I just wanted to dwell on this point because um, it, it's mm-hmm. it seems interesting what the what the point of music is, um, and even in this, I think to me these two points stood out: the one which is expressing what the what the composer or the artist feels, mm-hmm. how um, how they translate the word, but also it seems um, on another level a very communal experience that mm-hmm. whoever hears it should be united. Um, with the surroundings of the artist and again is that kind of polarity to it is it is it really just can the artist express himself validly if the audience would not understand, understand it? it yeah yeah well no I, I, no, right? I, no, 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 I, I don't think you no, I don't think so he, I think, I, it's, I I think, think it's impossible yeah. I think he uh, 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 implicitly thinks the opposite that he certainly can because the very beginning where he says yes all, all artists all innovators are futurists with respect to their time Bach was thought of as crazy the list goes on he, he says that no the there list. was a point where there was a point where um, boom did you get that one yeah I know that was great nice oh. nice hmm. there's no Z in there <laughs> uh, but uh, um, we get it. Yeah, it's it's the anharmonic equivalent of list without oh. the Z. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> fuck me. Uh, oh. But um, uh, yeah, and so um, no, I, I think he, he he sees that all innovators. There is a time where they're not understood, and mm-hmm. it's as if people have to be dragged kicking and screaming. And I think that that 
he doesn't do it, but it, it would be fascinating to explore. I think there is space for someone to explore um, why that would uh, why that would be necessary. How does that relate to this fundamental futurist idea of this kind of raw energy, which I think is one of our uh, uh, main conclusions from all these futurist man- manifestos, trying mm-hmm. to spot something. Sure, we've the got raw these, energy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm not because we have this weak sense of futurist, which is just anyone who seems to be you know, moving forward and hating the old, moving on from the old. But then there is the more narrow sense of the futurist, which is the futurism of the early 1910s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marinetti even specifically mentions that, you know, in 10, 20 years' time, they'll find us huddled around our old aeroplane sure. engines and they'll try and kill us. Mm-hmm. But th- So there is a kind of futurism which is in the narrow sense of the 1910s with Marinetti and Bala mm-hmm. uh, and all these others. And then there's just... The procession of time and that that energy that's right. The, the, the energy, yeah. I mean, the energy. I think here is um, the, that energy is constrained by is formally constrained in music. I think he feels by all of these different modes of thinking about and representing music that once torn down can perhaps let flow that primordial energy which then uh i guess exalts people you know it renders the musical to it will then be able to render the musical spirit of the masses hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah uh it's, it's gonna be a, a huge leap again uh sorry for that mm-hmm. but that just this um this concept of involving the technical innovations of the time and uh make it a an organic part of art and the concept of the author and whether they could express themselves through art if nobody would understand their intentions. To tie those things together today, and uh, this is a huge topic which um, mm-hmm. probably could have its own, I don't know, even podcast series. Um, but if you think about AI-generated music today, mm-hmm. which kind of involves the um, technical innovations of today. Sure, that's but also the innovation. Yeah. yeah, but there is no intention really or not really discoverable and i'm not sure if somebody could feel like an like an ai mm-hmm. or a plastic bag um, <laughs> but yeah again the we the, need to start again <laughs> um but yeah again just um interesting to see how purpose. these they do yeah, it on yeah. purpose <laughs> yeah um this question um resurfacing today or still being on the surface of creator and creation and audience um, especially when the creator is not really a person a person yeah sure um, so can you really understand AI music maybe there is a bonus episode mm. That. Mm. can you understand it well y- y- yeah so it, I guess it depends what you what you take meaning to be, um, or the point of of communication to, to be. I mean, I, so I okay, I could understand it, but it's not communication. Hmm. Okay. Communication doesn't, doesn't require a communicator. Yes. But I think that also depends on the on the way of perception. Because if you experience it with other people, then there could be a sense of communication through this medium. Right, okay. It's, and it's not with the AI. Yeah, I mean, in, in the way that like you give someone a mixtape. 
like that. Where like the mixtape ends up saying something really specific about what you want to tell that person. I mean, if person. it's only love songs, then probably. Or, you know, what, something yeah. like that, yeah. But or no, like, I like mean, for example, what you just did with the, the plastic bag. <laughs> that is, that, yeah. that, I mean, for the listeners, um, it's Thomas's least favorite song. I think least favorite lyric is uh, in Katy Perry's Firework, like a plastic bag. He hates that. Uh, so we obviously play it as many times yeah, as we possibly can. But like that, that right there, <laughs> through, through those words that might as well have been written by an AI for all we know. Yeah, very true, very true. Um, you were communicating something different, is that what you mean? Not quite. Um, so you said you could understand AI-generated music, but it's not communication. But at the same time, I feel if you experience that with other people, um, hmm. and this is going to be a very textbook example of non-verbal understanding of music but let's say it's dance music and you're dancing together to that AI generated piece sure. there is already communication through the medium even though it's not happening between you and the AI mm-hmm. but you and other people right it's like a facilitated yeah but that's mm-hmm. not communication isn't it no when uh, well I mean maybe maybe I loaded I, I loaded I loaded the uh the comment, right? No, 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 might no. Not no. be fair, but no, no, no. That's, that's it's just no. It's categorically not. Yeah, yeah. But sure. the re- the reason for that being is, um, uh, if I, uh, if you're say speaking uh, to Aaron, mm-hmm. and I just happen to listen, sure, I'm eavesdropping. Well, then you're not really communicating to me. It's communication, but you're really communicating to Aaron. Sure. There, there is, there is intention within this, uh, within communication. I, I can understand it, but you're not really communicating to me. So, so ideas the, yeah. are being across. It's almost like in a secondary sense there could be communication, but yeah. it's, it, this but is in so a looser sense. If an AI-generated song, uh, say, say, say it's like all in, in some like major key and it makes you feel happy, hmm. you're just like, oh, that was uplifting. That's all you get. No lyric, mm-hmm. no lyrics. I mean, I, I don't know if it if it makes sense to speak of its meaning. It's kind of like talking about the meaning. This like, is a question like for you, another if you, one. If it is, but I'm going to push it for no. another two minutes. Okay. If you, like, dig a bunch of clippings from the newspaper out, like 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 we will see in future episodes, and you make a, make a poem out of that, oh, well, but you just kind of throw them around. And yeah. did, did that throwing around mean anything? Does that mean anything? I think it's nonsense to say to ask if it meant something if it isn't said by a by an agent. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we should leave it just there. Okay, leave that there. Right. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much again to our guest uh, Aaron Genge, uh, who uh, has uh, Instagram at Gaspard Morgi. It will be uh, it'll be in the description because yep. no I, one does. No, I, yeah, I yeah. would like people to guess how to spell it and uh, <laughs> follow different people on Instagram. Uh, Spread the love. Yeah. Also, <laughs> we do have an Instagram that will be in the description. Uh, we also have a Ko-fi page, so if you do want to support us and help us out, then mm-hmm. please uh, do well. Leave us something. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week we'll be turning to the art of noises, which will be the final. Uh, look at the futurist art manifesto, uh, sorry uh, um, music manifestos, and that one we move away from 
uh, Pratella to Luigi Russolo, a name mm-hmm. that we've heard before. We know that I like his paintings, Profumo. Yeah. Um, and we'll see how he pushes it on and John Cage and Adamant and supposedly a, and a so whole plethora of others have been inspired so, uh, by that book. Exactly. And so obviously short work. Uh, Aaron will be back to talk about that one too. Yeah, with, with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Any, any time. Well, till next time. Thank you again.